This is the Leading Second Podcast. We're on a mission to raise up uncommon church builders and be the kind of leaders our pastors would kill to have on the team. All right, well, I want to welcome... Pastor Julian Lowe uh, from Oasis Church in Los Angeles, California to our podcast today. Say what's up to everybody. Good Julian. to see you, Brandon. What's up, everybody? So honored to be on here. It's amazing what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. And um, we love that God has given us a, a, a tribe of leaders who love the church and who love their pastors and who love their churches. And I know when I met you a couple of years ago, we met at an ARC um, meetup and your DNA from the, from the first sentence you said during that session, Q and A and all that, I just knew we shared the same heart toward that you were actually in the second chair uh, at the time. And now you, uh, you lead as a lead pastor, the church that you used to serve in pretty remarkable yeah, it's it's unbelievable. It's it's uh it's been a wild ride, but definitely super grateful. And um, um, also like you have a heart for second chair leaders and all that um, all that takes to do that. Well, we're glad you're on here tonight. And uh, for this conversation, um, man, we we want to we want to start a series of crucial conversations because we feel like uh, right now in our nation and in the church, it's it's anything but a normal time. And, um, we have, we have so many, um, issues that are pressing in on us as leaders and, and so many things we need to talk about and conversations we need to be having, um, the ways that we need to be learning right now. And so tonight I just want to position, uh, myself. I want to position our ministry as a student, because I come into this conversation tonight, we're, we're going to talk about, about race and leadership and what our pastors need from us right now. And. I certainly uh, do not pretend to know everything um, or know very much at all, actually, as to how to navigate this season. So really thankful for your voice tonight, Julian, and, and trust we're going to learn a lot. I'm also joined really quickly by three other friends, part of our Leading Second team and tribe who serve in their churches, Jay, Andrew, Rachel. They're going to pop on here from time to time tonight and um, um, help me ask some questions and, and have a great conversation. So, uh, before we get into things, um, on a leadership level, uh, Julian, I'd love to just talk on a human level, uh, for a second. And, um, I would just love to hear from you, uh, first of all today, um, what is it like to be a black person in America today? I mean, you woke up black today. I did not. <laughs> and correct. neither, neither of us chose those realities. Right. And, and yeah. so, um, I, I just want to know what, what is your experience like right now? Yeah, I think, um, that question is tough to answer because it depends on, um, the neighborhood you woke up in as a black person. It depends on the income level you woke up in as a black person. It depends on do you have to, can you jump in your nice car and drive to your job in, in 20 minutes? Or do you have to catch the bus because you, you're, you're living in poverty under the poverty line? I think for me, my pain um, as a black man in America came from being a, a black pastor. So I've lived in this world where my skin color was celebrated. It's my title was Pastor Julian. 
And, you know, people love Pastor Julian, or at least they say they do. But then you turn on the news and you are hit with the sobering reality that there's a lot of places that you're not Pastor Julian. Mm -hmm. And so for me, um, what it's like to be, you know, Black in America, I would say this. I feel like, quite honestly, God is no respecter of persons. Right. So I feel like, let me just give you this example. Let's say, obviously, Brandon, you're white. And because God doesn't, is not a respect of persons. He doesn't like you better because you're white. He doesn't like me better because I'm black. If he's going to give you five life-altering opportunities, that if you obey him and you follow him and you do what God is asking you to do in all five of those opportunities, you're going to step into the most unbelievable favor and blessing. He is also going to give me those same five opportunities. I strongly believe that about God. What happens though is, is that if for some reason you don't take advantage of those opportunities God gives you, America will give you 45 opportunities. And I might not have the same number from America. Mm. So what I experienced as a black man and didn't know I was experiencing that was the pressure to make sure I get everything right in church world because God is my only shot. Jesus is my only shot. And if I mess up, I, I can't go to America and get opportunities that my amazing love, loving white pastors, my pastors are white, have given me that they don't represent what I thought was white America. So I didn't realize my perspective from being a black man was pressure. I have got to get this right because every else, else I went, color mattered. And I would also say, by the way, that when we took over the church, um, the, the stat that I was given was that most black pastors that take over the church, um, they become the black church within 90 days. And so even now, I would be one of very few black pastors, maybe the only in Los Angeles that doesn't pastor a church that's 80% black. Um, so if I address racial issues, so again, I don't want to try to answer, um, for all, um, black men. I think there's a difference between a black man who's a Christian, a black man who's not, I mean, honestly, you're not good luck, man. It's, it's tough. And I've experienced both, but I would say that's how I would describe it. Uh, a person that needs to take advantage of every single opportunity God gives them because America may not give me the same ones. Wow. Wow. Uh, so well said, and we're one question in. So <laughs> you're, you're you're helping us already tonight. And um, where is your where is your head at, and where is your heart at right now? Um, just when it comes to the state of this conversation and the state of our nation right now, um, with race and race relations in America. Yeah, I think um, that my heart is all over the place, and I think that's okay, and it's okay for yours to be too. Um, I think, um, right now it feels good to have permission to be angry, to have permission to do things, um, to say things, to have permission to have this conversation where that wasn't always there. But I think, um, what you talked about that word race relations is the issue. I think that we don't realize the, the double standard or the double narrative that we unintentionally give black people. I'll give you an example. You know, um, the Watts riots, the LA riots of 92, 
you know, when people were rioting all over the country, um, thugs and criminals tarnishing the message of freedom, which I do not condone violence on any level. But what was interesting is when I went to school growing up, I learned about uh, a bunch of white settlers who tried to communicate with their government that they wanted freedom. Some unfair things were happening. They were literally oppressed. And then the straw that broke the camel's back, uh, as a proverbial saying goes, was their, their taxes on their tea were driven up. And so these white settlers, frustrated, believing for freedom, stormed the Boston Harbor, um, jumped ships, did a bunch of damage, threw tea in the ocean, and did, in today's dollar, $1.7 million in damage. But our history books call it a party, the Boston Tea Party. Our country was actually founded on a riot. But when the, it's rewritten, we say, no, 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 not that. They were freedom fighters. These people are violent. And, and I think I just have some questions about how that could happen. People say, for example, well, what about black on black crime? What's interesting in our country is that when someone goes down and, and guns down their fellow classmates with a semi-automatic weapon, the outcry that I hear is for mental health. And how do we know that black people aren't, listen, if you kill another person, you are absolutely having mental health issues, period. Right, totally. But the narrative when a black person does it is criminals. Mm. I've seen when another person of, that is not of color does it, man, we really need some mental health in this country. Man. We really, wow. Yeah, that guy just went crazy, man. We, we, too bad we didn't get him help in time. It, that's literally, um, you know, what happened. Um, and so I, I just, for me, it just feels like uh, the, there's these different narratives that get said about um, Black people. And I think it's important for us to lean into um, race relations like we've never, you know, had before. And I honestly believe, like I've even said people at, at conferences, you know, hey, you know, we want our church to look like heaven. And I'm like, well, your dinner table doesn't look like heaven. Your kids' birthday parties don't look like heaven. And so we bypassed what is true um, relationship between people of color and white people and people having uh, authentic relationships together. And I think it's done a lot of damage. You know, one of the ways that is felt for, for my life and again, for our ministry in this season is to position us as, as students, because, um, you know, black people are not monolithic. Not, like you've already mentioned, not every black person thinks the same way. Not white people are not monolithic. You know, uh, Asian people are not monolithic. We, we, there, there are, there are different ways of thinking, but it is really important. I think for all of us right now to, in a day where everyone wants to be heard for us to stop and listen and to, to get a variety of, of, um, of perspectives coming back our way, because, um, like you mentioned our dinner table, um, it really has convicted me in this season. Honestly, when was the last time that I sat down and invited into my home or went to someone else's home of someone who was really different than me? And honestly, other than like being on a ministry trip or something which would be work related, you know, other than that, I'm, I'm at a loss for the last time it happened. And I'm, I'm literally saying, God, forgive me of that. You know, like we're going to change that in my house because, um, 
we got away from it somehow, you know, and, and didn't, didn't appreciate its value. You think about, um, one of the dangers of constantly talking about racism would be that you, you, you ask yourself this question, am I a racist? Right. But you actually don't have to be a racist to do damage. All you have to do is be an environmentalist. Right. Unintentionally right. creating an environment where racism can thrive. Let me right. just give you an example. Um, little, little Billy, amazing young, you know, white kid, parents love Jesus. Um, never once have said a black, black word, a, a bad word against black people. Uh, Billy's parents don't have a racist bone in their body. But Billy has never played with an African-American kid. Billy's parents don't have African-American friends. Um, and then Billy grows up. Again, parents don't have a racist bone in their body. Little Billy goes to school with little Chase. I'm trying to use white names here. Just, you know, <laughs> just stay with me. I don't know. I've never met a black guy named Chase yet. So, okay. Little Billy goes to school with little Chase when he's 13. Little Chase is from a part of the country where racism is a little bit more prominent. Little Chase's parents are racist. Little Chase's parents um, use the N-word around Little Chase. Little Chase comes to Little Billy, and the first time Little Billy learns about an African-American is from Chase, not his parents. So now Chase is racist, Billy is not, and Chase is, is educating Billy on Black people through Chase's narrative. And you don't have a racism in a uh, racist bone in your body, and you unintentionally raise the racist by just being an environmentalist. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have to hate mold. You just gotta stop leaving wet towels on the ground. Mm -hmm. and, and so I think that we're not talking about environmentalists and that the lack of relationship between people of color is the perfect breeding ground. It's a petri dish dish for racism. And so until we deal with that, and, and, and I'll, uh, let me just add this as well. One of the reasons why I believe I can speak on race is, is not simply because I'm black and now you, you, you need to, to, to learn. Because at the end of the day, Brandon, I'm not asking you to become a, a, get a master's degree in black history in the next two years. Right, right, right. Totally. It, it is not student. It's brotherhood. Right. Here's the difference between me, and, and I honestly say this, between most black people in America. I have been profoundly loved by a white person. Mm. Mm. But I was almost 30. How scary is that? Mm. I was almost 30 years old before I could say that there was a white person um, in my life who deeply sacrificially loved me. Mm. I was almost 30. And mm. so my narrative's different because I've received that. I've received that investment. And um, I think that's important. And if we don't get to that, um, it, it will be, and I didn't realize it. So then now I watch the news and a white cop kneels on a black, you know, the, the media didn't spin that. It was, that top has been spinning every single time that we don't have black people in our life. You spun it that way. We yep. gave the media the power to spin it that way. So a lot of pastors go, the media is spinning the narrative. No, no, no. The media is helping you spin the narrative if you don't have black friends and yep. you don't have people of color around you. So I honestly believe that. They can't spin something that's not already spinning. Yep. So we all kind of have to take responsibility and not 
blame the media. We have to look at our lives and I'm looking at mine. And um, that's what I think. It's just really uh, relationships, man. Yep. I couldn't agree with you more. Couldn't agree. And let's, let's even, even though I could talk on that lane for, for quite a while with you, um, we're here to talk to leaders today. So let's, let's talk a, a leadership uh, lane Absolutely. for a couple minutes. And um, I just want to ask you my biggest question right out of the gate on that one. What in the world do our pastors need from us right now? <laughs> Le- leading second is, is for, you know, all of us who want to champion our pastors, vision and move the church forward you know many serve on church staff some even volunteer volunteer staff you were you know a, a second chair leader if you want to use that phrase and now you're a lead pastor which i i love what god is doing through you in your church thank you so much just the last few months um but just talk to us from the first chair for a second if you want to use that phrase um what like what do you need from your team right now as we lead through what is really a crisis or maybe even a double crisis, you know, kind of season. Yeah. I think I've never thought about what I need from my team simply because what I get from my team is what I gave from my, to my pastor. Mm. So the God will not be mocked. You reap, what you sow. So I sold nothing but loyalty to my pastor. So I think my team, I want what I need from my team is to give me what I sold. Hmm. That's why it's so dangerous to not sow that because you, you kind of can expect it. You know, you kind of can't expect it because you're in that role. Yep. But I expect people to give what I sow, what I've invested in them. And I think that um, many people don't have it to give and not that they don't want to, they don't have it to give but I need my team to, the way I would describe it would be this. Um, And this will help both second chair leaders and lead pastors is that really I have, I should have two types of people on my staff, Um, a sheep or a son and a daughter. Right. And so a sheep, they know my voice, but they don't understand my message. Like sheeps don't speak English. They know the tone, they know the voice, but they don't know the message. It's not like the shepherd can say, go left, and the sheep goes, goes left. He has to lead them left with his voice. So the, so the shepherd goes left, and, the sh- and they hear the shepherd speaking from the left, so they turn left. And so I have to be okay, and they have to be okay with, you might not agree with what I'm saying, but do you know my voice? So did you see me go left? Then you go left, and... I will say to any second chair leader, if you don't understand your passage, your pastor's message, it's dangerous to critique him before you get to the still waters. Mm. Wow. Wow. Because he's your shepherd. My sheep know my voice. So there were so many things, especially regarding race, that I did not agree, not race, I shouldn't say race, politics that did not agree with my pastor. Sure. Things that frustrated me that he would say, or that I I didn't agree with because I was frustrated because I didn't agree. But if I would have judged him at the time he was leading me based off his message, I would have left. But I ended up at the still waters. So you have to judge shepherds on destination, if not message. Hmm. Where did we end up? Does that make sense? 
where did I end up? So then now every time I trusted and leaned into something, as long as in the end, I ended up in a good place. I would say that. And then um, sons, the, the Bible talks about, I think it's believing in, in Psalm 127, that the sons in the original Hebrew contend with the enemy at the gate. So then what your pastor needs for you is, is when there's the murmuring and the whispers on staff about how he's handling it. If you're a son, you contend with the enemy at the gate. Yep. If you're a sheep, you go left after he goes left and you judge your pastor by destination, not by Instagram post. Yep. Yep. Which you uh, just led me to the question I want to ask you. And to be honest, the, the, topic of my last week's worth of zoom calls. I feel like this is really big on the heart of leaders. I feel, um, how can we lead best when maybe we are, um, frustrated, angry, want our pastor to do more, want them to do less. I mean, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for a second chair leader to find themselves in that place. It's just really hot right now. You know, it's, it's just really, it's, it's really volatile. It feels, you know, right now. And, and I think too, as, as leaders in the middle, we often, you know, have to have conversations with church members and volunteers and, and we want to represent our pastors well. And how do I do that in that moment? If I'm silently going through you know, he or she didn't post enough on social media or whatnot. You just made a great point, but I just love if you lean into that a little bit more because it's familiar territory for a, a, a second chair leader, but it's very, um, it's very heavy and hot in that area right now. Yeah. If you look at David in the Bible, um, and not to compare your pastor, but you really have to go off the word and how, Yes. I, I used to model myself like what would da- what did Daniel do with Nebuchadnezzar? Think about this. Think about Daniel being thrown in the lion's den with King Darius. And when Daniel gets out of the lion's den, he goes, Oh, precious king, the Lord has rescued me. Think about that level of honor. He threw him in there. Yep. Oh, precious. So 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 honor is gonna be really, really important. But I think practically, um you you have to trust that if you are right, that God, uh, let me just say this practical and I'll be very transparent. There was this one thing that was happening in our church and I completely disagreed. I completely disagreed with it. And I went to God in prayer and I said, God, I'm tired of caring about this more than you do. Mm. Wow. I'm done caring about this more than you do. If you don't care about this enough to do something about it, I refuse to believe that you are in the heavens asking an executive pastor to do something. I don't think that God's in heaven talking to Michael, the archangel and Gabriel and Moses and all the armies of heaven and saying, you know, that exec pastor, we really need his help. I mean, revival would be here. Stand up to his pastor in the meeting. So we're stuck. I just, I just didn't. I was, I just said, God, I'm tired of caring about this more than you do. And when I released it, it, like, like clockwork, God would come to me and say, I'll give you this crazy example. I say way more in public than I would have five years ago as my, uh, as an executive pastor. 
because I didn't want to say anything that went against my pastor's views. Right. Right. So I didn't want to talk about, I have, I I have a stance. I, I just, I said this online. I don't, I need white people to help me figure out how I can protest because we can't be violent. We can't kneel for the flag. I've never seen a protest that, that, you know, white America approved of. Martin Luther King died with a 25% approval rating. Mm-hmm. Martin Luther King. So somebody showed me what we can do that doesn't make you mad. Right. Wow. And I don't, at that time, I didn't feel like I could come out and say that. So I did it. So I waited. I said that three weeks ago, not I'm a lead pastor. And I still called my pastor and asked him about the post. And he's like, Hey man, I think, you know, you need your voice. You guys, that video had 500,000 views. Mm. When my, across all different people's platforms, people reposted it. So I would have thought that maybe my pastor wasn't allowing me to say something when I learned that it was God. It wasn't the timing, Because the first thing I said went everywhere and I'm on ABC News talking about race and I've been on every Zoom. So, so my, my point would be is that, God, I'm done caring about this more than you do. If you don't do something about it, then I'm, I don't need to. And, 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 and it's important to know, by the way, just when you think about succession, David being Saul's successor, David was on the run in a cave and David was the second chair leader. He was the mayor. That's right. He was on the run in the cave. And it can feel like sometimes the second chair leader, you're in the cave, but he raised up his whole army in that cave. And a lot of people don't know this, but when David got the crown, he got it in the cave. Mm. They brought the crown to the cave. So that place that feels like a cave or not being heard, that's where you get crowned. And I don't think that we realize that the next thing that God's going to crown people, people are leaving the cave and then the crown gets delivered and they're not there. And so I would say really lean into the word of God and just tell God, I'm done. If you want to do something about this, you need to. Because I just refuse to believe that you're waiting on an executive pastor to confront his pastor about how poorly he's leading the church for God to move. I just, I don't believe it. Man, someone needed to hear that. And I, I appreciate you saying it. Say it as bold as you want tonight. It's so good. Um, Jay, Andrew, Rachel, any of you guys have a question you want to ask? Yeah, absolutely. Pastor Julian, I'd love to to pick your brain on what we're seeing as leaders in, in churches and specifically here in Houston. What I'm hearing and seeing from my team is this desire to be heard, this desire to be understood, this desire to, you know, build that conversation that you mentioned earlier. And I, I guess I'd be interested to see for the leaders here on, on this podcast, what advice can you give us for helping us build empathy, build compassion? What can we be doing to make people feel loved, heard, accepted, all of that? Well, it actually depends on the condition of the soul of the person you're talking to. Because I have talked to some people that no matter what I say, it's just not enough. That's just a condition of their own soul. But I would say that people have discernment. I I think right now there's this real move of the Holy Spirit where people can tell um, if you're, if you're, if you're being genuine. I think that um, people know. And so I would just say um, what people need is for you to meet them where they're at. 
not try to bring them where you're at. So let's say, for example, um, there is a, um, a white guy in our church, really conservative Republican. Racism is a hoax. And this is the Democrat's way of getting Trump out of office. And he's saying all these things to me and I'm his pastor. And I'm like, bro, like this is wild. But I met him where he was at. And I said, hey man, I wanna, I wanna ask you a question about compassion. Like, have you ever noticed that Jesus cried with Lazarus and his family, knowing that he was getting ready to raise Lazarus from the dead? Wow. You, like, isn't that weird? Like if, if someone came to you right now and said they couldn't pay their rent and you just started weeping, like for 30 minutes and you're all just sobbing on the ground and then you pulled two grand out of your pocket and paid it, like, man, just wanted to cry with you real quick. For, like, that's the level of compassion that Jesus had when he had the solution, he still cried. And I think that we are in a solution-oriented world right now. And I will say this. I think a lot of people are leading churches with desired results, not prophetic future. Mm. Here's what I mean. Mm. If you say to someone, hey, man, the goal of the conversation is to make them feel better. Sometimes you don't say what they need to hear. But I try to point people towards this prophetic future where I've been telling our church, hey, man, I, I see a day where this is going to come together. Like, don't forget, Martin Luther King said that God took him to a, the mountaintop. So I don't want us protesting in the valley if we haven't been to the mountaintop. Because God, Martin Luther King went up on the mountain with God, got a vision, and then came down to the valley and protested. And so I've been telling our church that I'm going to the Lord in prayer, and he's been convicting my heart. People need to know you're going to God. And people need to know and sense and discern that what you told them, you got in God's presence. And that's, I think that's what people need to hear um, the most. They need to know that you went to God on, on their behalf um, when they don't feel like they can, you know? And I would say anything that you say to them that comes from that time, um, I, I have found to be comforting to people, even if it's not what they want to hear. Mm. Wow. And, I mean, I say this because the, the, the media took something that was in the unseen realm, in the demonic, and pulled it down into the natural. Hmm. So we can't have natural solutions to a spiritual problem. Yeah. And so the media pulled it into the natural. So when I tell you, like, I've been driving around L.A. weeping, God, you got to help me. And so what I say to people is this, this weekend, even I did a message called protest and prophesy. John the Baptist was a protester. Calling out in the wilderness, calling out means to loudly protest and proclaim. He was calling out society on all their junk and asking them to repent. But what was protesting doing? Paving the way for the coming of the Lord. So any protest that doesn't pave the way of the coming of the Lord is a protest that's going to lose steam pretty quickly. Wow. And so we have to tell people that, 
hey, I want you to protest. I want you, but the Lord's coming. You got to tell people. And when we have taken the second coming of the Lord out of our theology, and now we just want to solve it. So I honestly believe you start getting prophetic. You If you don't have that gift, you start telling people something. When I say prophetic, you don't have to be a prophet. You don't have to get weird, but you have to tell people something that God told you to say. And I think I, that, that really, prophecy even comforts unbelievers. And it doesn't have to be a prophetic word, like a personal word, but definitely prophetic revelation from God's word and your time of prayer has really um, helped me. And, and honestly, as second chair leaders, you have got to pull as much stuff off your pastor's plate in this season as you can. Because my executive pastor, right, allows me to spend most of my time processing with God so I can get an answer to what's going on. He's like, I'll take that. I'll take that. You shouldn't be doing that. And so in times of crisis, leaders need to be doing maybe one or two things. To be honest, if you're still having a growth track meeting, push your opening up your building out two or three weeks. This is the biggest crisis since the 60s. Like you might not be able to talk about next steps and racism in the same day. You might be able to talk to God and talk about racism. That's all you got. Does that, does that make sense? Is this, is this helpful? It, it, it makes, makes perfect sense. And honestly, I'm even seeing my pastor right now cut back on some stuff and not do some stuff right now. We just made a decision about something recently that we're just not going to do. And, and it's okay. And, and I'm, I'm hearing from them. If I'm honest, I'm, I'm hearing from them a version of the language. I, I could, I could feel the heaviness on them. I guess is what I'm trying to say. I can feel that they're wrestling and it's, it's moving my heart deeply with compassion. I spent all yesterday morning out on a walk, just praying for the two of them because I just, I know that it's heavy right now. I know that they have never been here before. I know that they don't know how to get it right, you know, for everybody right now. And they, they carry that. And I, I pray that every leader listening to you today, that, that empathy rises up on the inside of them because it's so real for pastors right now. Yeah, if you, if you won't help your pastor clear his calendar, how is he supposed to clear his head to answer the largest problem, um, the, the, the toughest six months, arguably in the last 50 years? Yep. But we, if we, can't, we can't clear our calendars or you don't help your pastor clear his calendar you know, he's not gonna be able to clear his head. So I have my team and I say back to your other question, man, they helped me clear my calendar. Hey, you don't need to, you need to be, you need to focus on this. And I think some mornings I just sit there for two hours and I drink coffee and I'm like, what am I going to do? And then two hours later, it's like, I got it. Now, if I had 40,000 Zooms, right? About did we order the face mask for this weekend? then how am I, you know what I mean? Like somebody order the face mask so I can call on God. And if you didn't order those face masks this weekend and I got to show up and there's no hand sanitizer, you have crippled my ability to hear from God. Say it, say it. I'm just being honest, man. Like, because then I don't think about answering these questions. I'm like, man, last weekend we didn't have hand sanitizer. I'm trying to open the church and I don't want to get, you know? So, um, yeah, don't don't send your pastor stuff on the CDC reports and how many people got coronavirus. Like, don't just respond. Does that make sense? And um, makes great sense. I, I think you'll be able to be a big blessing. 
Mm. Well said. Well said. Andrew, Rachel. I love how you just gave us a, a picture of the heart of our pastors because they are carrying so much. And I feel like as second chair leaders, oftentimes we are standing in that gap and representing them to volunteers, to team members, to church members. And um, oftentimes some of those people can be very critical of choices that are, that lead pastors might be making. What's the best way that we can represent the heart of our pastors to those people while also validating the feelings and the real hurt that some of them are experiencing? Yeah, um, that's a really difficult question because um, part of it is, I will say this, crisis accelerates a future reality. Hmm. So in crisis, if somebody was, it leaves, they were going to. Hmm. It was just going to be in 10 years. Crisis brings people together and divides. So it's not your job to um, save church members. It's not your job to keep church members from being mad at your pastor. You know, what's interesting is that, um, you know, approval ratings are how we, you know, politicians are, you know, this person's approval rating. My approval rating goes up and down with people probably. And so I think that's, be careful that that's not your job. Right. You want to pastor them, but you want to also challenge them. So I think the hardest person to pastor who's upset at your pastor is when you agree with what they're upset about. Mm. Oh, that's hard. So I'll give you a real example. Uh, This, I was a youth pastor. Our church was melting down. People were leaving, um, you know, by the hundreds. It was a crazy, crazy time. It was five, six years ago. It was a nightmare. And I was the youth pastor at the time. And um, every team had 30% of its team come off, go to another church. And I was the only team that um, um, didn't have that happen. And the common denominator was I told my team the truth. I didn't give them, I was like, hey, our church is really struggling right now, but we're going to make it through. Like, we're going to get past this. This happens in church. Like, I know you have this thing, this idea of how you want a church to be, but people are human. And, and I'm just giving our pastor time to hear from God. Let me ask you a question. Has your life changed since you've been in this church? Like, you don't agree, but how's your life? Would you be where, where you are without... So for me, that's what I looked at. So when my pastor didn't do something I agree with, I pointed them towards something that they could hold on to to get them through the crisis. And I think if we try to act like what they're saying is not valid, we need to trust our pastor. Well, I get that. But it's like, what do you do when you're, you're struggling to trust your pastor? You got to be honest. Well, what do you do when you struggle to trust your pastor? You point to all that he's done. And, and I really believe that this is where we lose God. Like, that's why the Jewish people have it down. They're still talking about things that God did 3,000 years ago. And, and we have a very, what have you done for me lately? So you have a person, I'm mad at you today. I forget about everything you did for me yesterday. And so you need to remind them, right? And I would also say 
that if they trust you enough to tell you, you need to be more leading into crisis. I was always so communicative about what Pastor Philip had done for me. So almost like if you like me, you had to like him. And I think we don't do that enough. Like we, we don't lead to our pastors. And when a crisis hits, they're there. So people at times when they were upset at Pastor Philip or frustrated what he was doing, they're looking at me, like, how are you doing? And so they're temperature checking you because they actually want to see if you're struggling too. Does that make sense? And um, I, I think it's very difficult and very dangerous if you don't decide in that moment, hey, I'm going to contend with the enemy at the gate. And I'm gonna I'm gonna build unity, and I'm gonna be honest with our pastor. People are struggling with this, and I'm gonna encourage my pastor, and and say, hey, what would you like to tell people? This is what I feel people are saying. So, um, it doesn't sound helpful, but in times like this, we got to be honest. We got to understand that people may not agree, and they might transition, and you can't feel bad or feel like you didn't do your job. That's what happens in crisis for sure. Wow, thank you. That's actually very helpful. (laughs) One of the things about executive pastors is like, if my hardest part about being executive pastor is the part that I hate about being executive pastor, can I be honest? You kill yourself to serve your pastor. And when you do something right, everyone says, praise Jesus. When you do, when something goes wrong, you get an email. That's the hardest (laughs) part. It's like, so you, you're going to get all the emails. And when you, work up all night long on something everybody goes man god is moving in our church you're like i worked on that y'all for 15 hours god is moving <laughs> but he moves through me being up till 3 a.m that's what i wanted to say when, when my pastor would come and say god is moving i was like yeah he moved because i was up till 3 a.m that's why he moved but again you've signed up for that you're signing up where all the praise goes to god and all the emails go to you and i signed up for that and i'm ready and it's okay and so you can't get frustrated because everyone's going to come to you and everyone came to me. And um, I think that is the hardest part about being a second chair leader. The glory goes to God. The problems come to you and you're built for it and you're born for it. And if you keep reminding yourself of that, um, you, you'll get it. You'll get through it for sure. Mm. So good. So good, Pastor Julian. Hey, um, I'm here in uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, and um, I and one of the campus pastors here at a church. Um, a couple of questions that I kind of get often here is obviously one that you just kind of answered. How do you kind of lead with tensions? But the question that I'm getting specifically, not only from my pastor, I'm like one of the only black um, African-Americans on staff here um, in Salt Lake City, Utah. The question that I get often is how can we um, support our black community more in Salt Lake City, Utah, or just in, in general, in any church, in any area, because we know that this is such a heavy topic, but how can we really support and lean into them, but not only them, but all other ethnicities that are in our church? Um, tell me your name again. Andrew. Andrew, yeah. uh, would, would you, uh, what is the percentage of black people in your church and percentage of black people in the community? So there's about, in our church specifically, not only just Black people, but ethnicities, different ethnicities besides Caucasians, about 30%. Okay. So I think, again, I would say that um, if, how do you serve your Black community? I can tell you what we're doing. I think that um, I believe that the church's job 
is to spiritually gentrify a neighborhood. So what we're doing is, is I think we invite those communities to come to church, but Jesus was alive 33 years before the church existed. And all he did was spiritually gentrify the entire earth, healed, set free, cast people out, you know, provision, miracles. He's like, oh, all you have is five loaves and two fish. Boom, 15,000 people. He fed 15,000 people with what? So there was this spiritual gentrification of love and generosity and hope and healing. And I think that um, we don't do that enough. I think we invite people to church, which is great. Um, but I think if we go to those neighborhoods and we bring hope and we bring love to the neighborhood, um, I would say make house calls, right? Not everybody is going to come. And that's what we've been trying to do. But I would also say this, and this is, is your, is your, um, is your pastor uh, white? Yes. I'm really in Utah. I was, I, was like, yep. <laughs> I was like, I mean, I'm just assuming. Yeah. I would say for every white person, white pastor, I would say before you do anything for black people, I would ask your pastor, is he feeling the pressure to do something for black people? Because let me tell you something. There is such a beautiful difference between feeling the pressure and feeling the anointing to do something for the black community. It is, man, I, I, there's nothing that you could describe when you feel called and anointed to do something. So as a black pastor, working for a white man in Utah, give your pastor the space to move from pressure to anointing. Because quite honestly, if he grew up in Utah, he might have never even thought about the black community. But the beautiful thing is he's probably thinking about you and he's thinking about how that hurt you and it affected you and give him the space. Put together a plan that that helps get some resources there. It's like, I want to give you the space to move from pressure to calling and anointing. I know you love me and I know you love black people. I know maybe you haven't thought it, but I just want to let you know, like maybe think about it and pray about it and ask him, hey, are you feeling the pressure? You know, like, are you feeling that? Um, and then give him the space. Wow. And then as a black man, don't how old is your pastor he's 36 so yeah, yeah as a is he did he grow up in utah uh yeah yep don't Part make your white pastor come up with what he's gonna do for black people growing up in utah you do it <laughs> like it's just like because uh, let me just be real i mean we're being real this is going on. i gotta help somebody you can't as a black man go to your or a person of color fold your arms and say okay what are you gonna do Say that. What are you gonna do? Because because I'm 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 mad right now. I'm frustrated. Frustrated. What are you gonna do? And as soon as you start saying, "What are you gonna do?" and you don't say, "Here's what we should do," you already lose. Yep. So my pastor would come to me all the time, like, "Hey, man, like I don't know nothing about this," and, I, and I'm like, "Hey, I got you. Here's what we need to do." He posted this post about Black Lives. He called me five times. I wasn't just waiting back. I'm like, hey, man, 
Don't say that. Hey, love you, Pastor P. Don't say that. And and here's here's what I said, and I'll be honest. I said, I said, the white conservatives are gonna kill you if you say it like that. <laughs> and he said, here we are in the middle of the greatest race crisis and you're worried about about what I'm going to get from people. I'm just like, hey, don't say it that way. You got to say it this way because this is actually true. So, so it's just I'm trying to take the pressure off of my, yeah. my pastor of feeling that he has to res, uh, react, not prayerfully um, respond. Wow. You brought up an interesting dynamic of, of helping, helping our pastors line up their intent with their impact when they post something. How, what's the best way to sort of get into that groove, I guess, with, with our pastors? If maybe there's something that, like a blind spot that we're seeing, like this is not coming across the way that we want, they want it to come across. Yeah. Um, I think that um, the blind spot is tough because um, there's a lot of blind spots. If you look at what Jesus um, said, he prophesied that there'll be wars nation against nation. And that's actually ethos versus ethos. It's ethnicity versus ethnicity. It's not countries versus countries. So before you can actually approach your pastor, you have to actually go, Hey, like God said, this would happen. This isn't happening because God said this would happen. Okay. So you're centering yourself. And then you have to make sure that your pastor, you know, again, it goes back to what I said earlier. I think that um, pastors really want to say the right thing, right? And how you can help your pastor say the right thing is by being completely honest. And I think that a, a lot of challenge, the biggest challenge I had as an executive pastor was being honest. Because I would sacrifice honesty on the altar of honor when they both have the same root word. So there are times when my pastor would type something up and I, oh, that's great, Pastor P. Knowing, I don't know if I like that part. Wow. So, so and you, you send this, your pastor out to the wolves because you're not telling the truth. You know, the number one thing that I felt that got me to where I'm, I'm at, besides obviously just God's crazy grace, is I figured out honor and honesty. And that many staff people in their effort to honor, they're not being honest. Does that make sense? And so I would say things like, Pastor, are you aware of how much I love you? Let me teach you about a, con- a conversation about the, uh, it's called the, uh, the path of a mutual agreement. And it's how you have a conversation. So you don't bust into your pastor's office and go, hey man, we got to do something about this. The people are going crazy. He's already like, he just got an argument with his wife. She just got an argument, whatever. The path of mutual agreement. So it's, hey pastor, are you concerned that this post might be taken the wrong way. Yes. Would you like help? Yes. What part of the post concerned you the most? This part. 
can I share with you the part of the post that concerns me? So I think in our busyness, my, my advice to answer your question, sorry for being so long-winded, make sure you don't have a two-hour conversation in 15 minutes. Like, you might, we're talking about race. So I think so many times we have at the end of the meeting, hey, and also, by the way, every time I had a meeting with my pastor, the first 10 minutes was always about, should I still have the meeting? Mm-hmm. This is this, let me tell you something. This is the best, I'm, gonna, I'm giving you all my secret sauce. <laughs> I love it, I love it, do it. We got a meeting at 3 p.m. about growth track. We got a meeting about 3 p.m. about what, how we're gonna respond to race. Pastor P, how you feeling? I'm terrified. Okay. Next 45 minutes of this meeting is building your confidence that you can respond to this, that you hear from God. Hey, by the way, Pastor P, you got any more time later this afternoon or tomorrow, tomorrow morning? Yeah, sure. Why? Yeah, I want to catch up with you some about some stuff. And then I will talk to him about the race conversation that I wanted to talk to him in this meeting, but he was dealing with fear and he was so afraid that he was going to, so I, I, sometimes I've scheduled five meetings to talk about what I wanted to talk about in the first meeting. But this meeting, this person quit. This meeting, and I don't shut. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. I'm always having meetings to see if I should have the meeting that I want to have. And I cannot tell you how many times that's something I really needed to talk to him about on Monday didn't happen until the next Monday. So... Um, that's what I would do. It's the, it's the secret sauce. So your, your job is not just to talk to your pastor about race or what you want to talk about or whatever your plan is. Your job, if you're really good at it as second chair leader is to get your pastor in the place where he can talk about it. Because as executive pastor, you're probably the only one on staff who can do that. Yep. Or a second chair leader. That's why you're in the second chair. Yep. It, it's not because you're so good or you can preach or you can MC. Typically it's because you can clear your pastor's head and allow him to make better decisions the ways other people can't. So yeah. does that make uh, sense? Like I, I'm just, these questions are so good. I'm trying to make sure that I say all the things I'm like going back to my second chair days and, and what I would do. Did that answer your question? Yes. Thousand percent. That was fantastic. Yeah, and we're gonna we're gonna have you back specifically for an episode called "The Secret Sauce of Second Chair Leadership." I've already like I've, I, I you're 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 literally someone just put in the chat. This is a masterclass, absolutely. So pl- plan on that. I'll I'll make you confirm in front of everybody here that you're gonna do that for me. Uh, <laughs> hey, secret sauce, man. I love it. I love it. Um, we do need to land the plane for this segment though. And I just appreciate you so much. I, from the day I met you, I sent such a deep and rich anointing on your life and no doubt in my mind, um, you are, you know, for such a time as this, God just has his hand on your life. It's, it's no accident. This has happened in the first six months of you pastoring and I'm sure it wouldn't have been what you picked, but I'm so glad you're doing it. It wouldn't. (laughs) And, um, Man, we're thankful for you. I want to ask you to just um, end us on a ministry note. You know, this um, on the call right now, we have some leaders that have joined us, but then this is going out on our podcast. And 
I would just love if you would speak prophetically for a minute over leaders that are leading in this season. If you just want to declare some things or pray or, or talk for just a minute, but would you just minister to us? And um, I, I, there's, there's a lot of leaders out there fighting a lot of battles for their pastor right now. And we need God to be with us to, to help us because we, the church truly is the hope of the world and can bring, be such an agent of healing in this time. If we will, um, allow God into, you know, our lives and into this space as leaders. So we just end us on a ministry note, if you would, for just a minute. Absolutely. I think when you said that, the, the phrase that came to mind is God wants you to know that you're not fighting for something you're fighting in something. Joshua crossed the Jordan and then immediately was hit with the, the battles, but he wasn't fighting for his promised land. He was fighting in it. And I really think that, that in this time, we are fighting in a promised land. You know, this isn't our time where we're wandering around. With, like, I, I feel like even if you look in the past, in the past couple of years, all of y'all have these manna stories, these stories where God did these crazy things. You got the building, you got this person came out of nowhere, this thing. We've all had the manna stories. We've all had the miracles. We've all been in the presence of God. God's done something so special in our church and we've been with God and we've really learned how to worship him. If I go to one, any one of your churches, y'all probably have phenomenal worship. There's been this crazy worship movement that has come to the church. And now we have crossed the Jordan into the promised land and here comes warfare. Um, here comes warfare. And if we're not careful, we think we're fighting for something and not in something. We are in the promised land. We are in the very next thing. And I think that um, when you look at Joshua 1, 8, we put it on coffee mugs, we put it on memes, and, and, and it's be strong, be bold, be strong and courageous. And, and I think that we really need to be careful to not finish the sentence. Because I don't think the most important part of that verse is be strong and courageous. It literally continues to say, for you are the one. Why is he telling him to be strong and courageous? For you are the one. He is telling him the recipe for boldness, strength, and courage is a revelation that you are the one that God has picked. So every single time I feel like I'm in a battle, I just go with God. I'm like, I'm the one. You, you picked me. And that will make that there's this rush of strength and rush of boldness. So don't be, be strong and courageous without realizing you are the one. That is the most important part Amen. of that verse, that you are the one, and you're not fighting for your promised land, you're fighting in it. And so I just want to pray for everybody on this call right now that's experiencing just deep, deep crisis. I believe that the Lord is, is, is moving. And so, Father, we thank you for each and every pastor and leader on this call. And God, even right now, there's somebody who is upset and frustrated with their pastor for um, their lack of response. And I feel so led to share with everybody on this call. The Bible says, blessed are those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. So if your perspective is from God, then it's a blessing. And I really feel like the Lord wants me to tell you, if God blessed you with an amazing five-bedroom house, would you call all your friends who are living in an apartment and be angry because they don't have that same blessing? No. So if your perspective on this time 
is from God, then the Bible says you are so blessed. Don't be mad at your pastor or anyone else who have yet to see it that way. It is a blessing to see it that way. And so I just pray God right now for, for this blessing of revelation on what to do and how to do it um, that would come upon every person on this call and that people would remember um, who you are in all of it and that they would honor their pastors and love their pastors. Um, and true love is proven when given to someone at the lowest point. So even if they feel like their pastors, that is their lowest point of leadership, then I pray that they would prove their love to them by loving them at their lowest point, uh, just like Jesus did with us. So we love you, Lord. We're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 For more information, you can go to leadingsecond.com and find our digital magazine. You can also follow us on Instagram at leadingsecond to keep up with our community of uncommon church builders. Amen.